0: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of sexual assault and rape, sexual assault and rape of a child, and child murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: On December 3rd, 1957, Maria Ridolf was kidnapped from outside her home in Sycamore, Illinois by a mysterious man who called himself Johnny. Though dozens of detectives tried to solve the case, none succeeded.
0: But Illinois State Police Officer Brian Hanley would try again in 2008. By that point, the girl had already been dead for more than 50 years.
1: Hanley thought this time would be different. This time, the case was open because of a deathbed confession. A woman from Sycamore implied that her son, Jack McCullough, took Maria when he was 18 years old. And the more that Hanley looked into this man, the more likely it seemed.
0: Jack fit the description of the kidnapper to a T. He was also one of the first people that the FBI interviewed in 1957. The teenager claimed he took the train to Chicago the day before Maria disappeared and was in the nearby town of Rockford at the time of the abduction, which was widely reported to have occurred around 7 p.m.
1: The FBI removed Jack McCullough, known then as John Tessier, from their suspect list when they found evidence that he'd made a phone call from Rockford at 6.57. They saw this as enough to confirm his entire alibi— But Hanley wasn't so sure. He'd found plenty of inconsistencies in the story.
0: Most recently, Hanley spoke to a woman who was dating Jack at the time. He needed a photo of the young man, and luckily enough, she had one from a dance in June of 1957 that she could send in the mail.
1: A thick envelope slapped down on Hanley's desk in the spring of 2010. He carefully opened it. Two teenagers beam from the photo in gauzy black and white. To the left, a much younger version of the woman he'd spoken to. And to the right, a skinny, white-suited Jack McCullough.
0: Hanley flipped over the cardboard frame. There was an inscription on the back, Love Johnny. As he gently tugged at the photo's edges, another piece of paper fluttered out.
1: It was a government-issued train ticket from December of 1957. Presumably, the one Jack used to get to Chicago. But the ticket wasn't punched.
0: Hanley was stunned. Investigators now speculated that Jack McCullough may have lied about the train more than 50 years ago. And if he did, they wondered what else he could be hiding.
1: This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
0: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case.
1: You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
0: This is our final episode on Maria Ridolph. Last week, we covered the 1957 abduction and the surprise confession that reopened the case. This week, we'll find Jack McCullough and follow along as the case goes to trial. 55 years too late.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some
0: After Janet Tessier sent an impassioned email to the Illinois State Police in September of 2008, officers Brian Hanley and Larry Cott got to work. Janet had heard her mother implicate her older brother, Jack McCullough, as she was dying of cancer in 1994. At the time, he was still using his birth name, John Tessier.
1: Janet contacted multiple law enforcement agencies in the 14 years since her mother's deathbed accusation, but they all turned her away. She explicitly told the Illinois State Police that this was her last attempt to find an investigator.
0: Maria Riddolph’s story was almost an urban legend by then, and most people assumed it'd never be solved. But Janet's desperation convinced the state police to make one final attempt.
1: The two agents who reopened the case knew exactly what they were up against. There was hardly any physical evidence found where seven-year-old Maria disappeared on December 3rd, 1957. And only one person saw the man who took Maria away. Her best friend, Kathy Sigman, who was only eight years old at the time.
0: It had been more than half a century. Any investigator on this case would be up against a ticking clock. So Cott and Hanley knew they needed to track down witnesses and gather information as fast as possible.
1: Hanley and Cott methodically tracked down Jack's other siblings and friends from high school. They tried to put together where he really was that night.
0: Jack himself had claimed that he'd been in Chicago on the morning of December 3rd. He'd taken the train there the day before to take a military physical and needed to stay overnight for additional tests. He failed the physical because of a scar on his lung and was directed to the Rockford Recruiting Office.
1: He remained in Chicago until about 5 p.m., then took the train to Rockford. According to the original FBI notes from his 1957 interview, the recruiting office had already closed.
2: He then went to the front of the post office where he found a telephone and called his parents in Sycamore, requesting that they come and pick him up. Tessier advised that he placed his call about 7 p.m. on Tuesday evening. He informed us that he also placed a call from Rockford to his girlfriend in Sycamore and talked to her long enough to make a date for 9 o'clock that evening.
0: The 18-year-old did eventually talk to Air Force officers who instructed him to come back the next day. His father picked him up, and the teenager claimed he went home to see his girlfriend. The countywide search for Maria Ridolf disrupted their date. Tessier advised he spent
2: from approximately 9:20 until about 10:30 with his girlfriend, then returned to his home and joined the searchers in an attempt to locate the victim.
1: The FBI accepted Jack's alibi after he passed a polygraph test in 1957. But many of the people who Hanley and Cott spoke to called this story into question. For one, Jack told the federal agents that he and a classmate joined the search for Maria but the classmate
0: said he never saw Jack that night. Jack also claimed he went to his girlfriend's house in Sycamore after he met with Air Force recruiters in Rockford. When the detectives finally found her, she said her parents wouldn't allow her out, and she didn't see him at all.
1: Jack's former girlfriend also provided two key documents, the train ticket and photograph. Though there was no clear indication that the ticket was his, It could indicate that he lied about at least one thing in his alibi.
0: The teenager insisted to the FBI that he called his father to pick him up around 7 p.m. He wasn't in town when Maria was abducted and therefore couldn't be guilty.
1: But investigators were beginning to theorize that if he didn't take the train, that meant he probably used his own car, which gave him much more flexibility. They felt that he could have gotten a Sycamore at some point in the day, abducted Maria in the evening, and still made it to Rockford in time to make the phone call
0: that provided his alibi. There were a few reports by civilians suggesting that John used his car that day. One person claimed to have seen it in downtown Sycamore in the afternoon. One of his sisters also said their father couldn't have picked Jack up from Rockford. He had picked her up from the 4-H club instead.
1: The train ticket cast even more doubt. But
0: the other piece of evidence was far more important to the case. Because Jack was cleared in 1957, Kathy never got a chance to see his face in a photo lineup. And because he was kicked out of high school in the 10th grade, there wasn't a yearbook photo that they could use.
1: Many years had passed since Kathy saw the man who called himself Johnny, and she only saw him for a few minutes.
0: The investigators hoped that her imperfect memory would be enough. In September of 2010, Officer Brian Hanley clipped together six photos of high school boys who lived in Sycamore at the time and arrived at Kathy's doorstep.
1: The woman was now 61 years old. She'd moved back to the Chicago suburbs to be with her aging parents and now used her married name, Kathy Chapman. When Hanley first arrived at her doorstep, she turned him away. She wanted nothing to do with the Maria Ridolph case.
0: Eventually, her husband let Hanley inside. The officer sat next to her on a couch and asked her to recall that December night one more time. She didn't seem ready for the photo lineup quite yet, but told the agent he could come back in a few days.
1: On September 9th, 2010, Hanley returned to the Chapman house. He laid out the six photos on the coffee table and began to flip them over one by one. A cropped version of Jack McCullough's formal photo sat next to five yearbook pictures from Sycamore High School.
0: The police did their best to match up his photo with the others, but it still looked decidedly different from the rest.
1: The other boys were in front of a light gray school portrait background, while Jack's background was pitch black. And the high schoolers all looked off to the left, while Jack stared straight into the camera. All the boys in the yearbook photos wore dark suits, and John was in
0: white. His photo stood out and drew the eye in a way the other photos didn't. Hanley and his team may have acknowledged this, but seemed to trust Kathy's memory.
1: Hanley flipped over the final photo and sat in silence for a few seconds. He asked Kathy if she recognized Johnny.
0: By this point, Kathy had heard this question hundreds of times. She'd only said yes once before, but that identification turned out to be false. It had been at least 40 years since she last looked at a photo lineup like this.
1: Kathy said yes without a moment of hesitation and pointed at the fourth photo. Sure enough, it was Jack McCullough. She tapped on the photo again and said it'd be impossible to forget his face. She believed that it was Johnny.
0: Hanley packed up the photos and headed back to the office. It really looked like they were on the right track.
1: Now that the Illinois State Police had a positive identification from Kathy Chapman, they could move forward with finding Jack McCullough.
0: His siblings said he'd settled in the Seattle area. Hanley contacted a pair of cold case investigators in the Seattle Police Department. It didn't take long for the grizzled detectives to find the man who was now in his early 70s.
1: Jack Daniel McCullough, formerly known as John Tessier, seemed to have a fairly quiet life. He worked as a security guard at a retirement complex. He changed his name in the mid-1990s when he got married to his fourth wife, who he still happily lived with.
0: After he left Sycamore in 1957, Jack joined the Air Force. He switched to the Army eventually and earned a Bronze Star for his service in Vietnam. Once his military career ended, he moved to the Pacific Northwest and looked for law enforcement work. In
1: 1974, Jack became a cop in a small town about 60 miles from Seattle. By 1979, he was able to transfer to a larger department in Milton, Washington,
0: According to Anne O'Neill in the CNN investigative series Taken, when investigators looked into Jack's time as a cop, they found various claims of his, quote, womanizing ways.
1: In the early 1980s, Jack McCullough was put on probation from the Milton Police Department after being accused of statutory rape with a 15-year-old runaway.
0: He claimed that the allegations were false and pleaded guilty to a lesser charge. Still, he resigned from the police department in 1982 and never got another law enforcement job.
1: In his mid-40s, Jack launched a photography business. The Seattle detectives were able to find several models who worked with him throughout the 1980s. These women claimed he lied about working for magazines and forced them to drink on the
0: shoot. When the cold case investigators searched a storage container of his, inside were thousands of photographs of women in bondage and fetish gear.
1: Jack had married three times by the mid-1980s. His third wife, Denise Trexler, claimed he made sexually suggestive comments about his daughter from a previous marriage, who was 12 years old at the time.
0: Denise also allegedly found a nude photograph of the young girl presumably taken by her father.
1: Even though Denise was deeply disturbed by Jack's alleged behavior, she stayed with him throughout the 1980s. He ended the marriage in 1989, to which Denise claims to remain grateful for.
0: Jack met his fourth wife soon after he left Denise. He seemed committed to this relationship and even offered to change his name for her.
1: His new fiancé's name was Sue O'Connor, He told her he'd lost contact with his family, but wanted to honor his mother by taking her maiden name.
0: Sue liked the idea of being the first Mrs. McCullough more than being the fourth Mrs. Tessier, and took him up on it.
1: With his name change, Jack McCullough seemed to become a different person entirely. He found stable employment and gladly took on the role of stepfather to Sue's daughter. His marriage seemed solid and predictable.
0: But still, Jack's past occasionally came back to haunt him. After he proposed to Sue in 1993, she received a disturbing phone call from his half-sister, Jean Tessier.
3: You seem like a good woman, Sue. I don't think you know what you're getting into. This man is evil. He's hurt me, and he'll hurt you, too. You need to get out now.
1: Sue tried to ask why Jean thought her brother was so dangerous, but Jean didn't elaborate.
0: Sue disregarded the phone call. She knew Jack didn't stay in touch with his sisters.
1: She didn't realize Jean was alluding to an alleged event that would eventually land Jack in court. According to Jean, her brother had raped her.
0: After a few months of information gathering, the detectives were ready to move in on Jack McCullough. They staked out the retirement home for several days. He worked part-time as a night watchman there, so the Seattle police planned to lure him away right after his graveyard shift.
1: A police officer approached Jack as he wrapped up his work for the night on June 29, 2011, He said they'd need his help with a local investigation at an apartment complex where Jack had previously worked, and Jack obliged.
0: As soon as he arrived at Seattle Police Headquarters, Jack McCullough was locked into an interrogation room. The cold case investigators had questions about a crime that occurred more than 2,000 miles away 50 years prior, the murder of seven-year-old Maria Ridolf.
1: Jack didn't seem phased by the request, He agreed to tell the police anything they needed to know.
0: Coming up, Jack McCullough talks about the case for the first time in decades.
2: The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility. And some implausible ones, too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify.
1: Now, back to the story.
0: Brian Henley and the detectives in Seattle, Washington, might have expected Jack McCullough to be uncooperative when they interrogated him on June 29, 2011.
1: But their prime suspect in Maria Ridolph's murder was completely calm as they walked through the events of December 3, 1957. Or at least he started out that way.
0: As a former cop, Jack acted chummy with the detectives. He answered questions about the kidnapping without protest, but his demeanor began to change as the questions became more personal.
1: According to the article taken, Jack, who was around 72 years old at the time, quote, bristled when the officers inquired about his marriages. And when the subject turned to the assault allegations from his sister, Jean Tessier, He reluctantly admitted to a single encounter with her.
0: When Hanley directly asked Jack if he'd raped Jean, he vehemently denied it.
2: I never had sex! Okay, what did you have? Just playing around.
1: Then, apropos of nothing, he changed the subject back to Maria.
2: I'll tell you something, I did not kidnap that little girl. Look at my eyes. I did not have anything to do with that little girl. She was loved in the neighborhood. She was a little Mexican girl with big brown eyes and she was sweet as could be. Hardly said a word to anybody and everyone loved her.
1: Hanley noted the dramatic change in Jack McCullough's tone when he talked about Maria. He felt that Jack seemed tender, almost loving toward the seven-year-old and continuously circled back to how beautiful she was.
0: Jack seemed to have a remarkably clear mental image of the girl. While this could be attributed to the storm of media coverage around her disappearance and the fact that Jack grew up only a few blocks away from the Ridolf house, it raised some red flags in the investigators' minds.
1: When the interrogation team asked Jack where he was on December 3, 1957, his story was generally consistent with the one he'd given the FBI at the time— He wavered on a few details, like where he went after his father picked him up in Rockford.
0: He initially said he went straight home and fell asleep when one of the interrogators pointed out that his siblings claimed they didn't see him that night. Jack told them the conversation was over.
1: The detectives continued to push and read from the original FBI files. He claimed to not remember if he saw his girlfriend that night, and reiterated that he'd helped with the
0: search for Maria. Hanley and his colleagues asked Jack how he'd gotten to and from Chicago on December 2nd and 3rd. He'd previously said he went by train, but the unpunched ticket made investigators wary.
1: Jack eventually said he didn't remember if he took the train or not.
0: At one point during the interrogation, one of the detectives left the room and Jack McCullough was left alone with Brian Handley. He leaned across the table and offered his own theory about who the culprit was.
2: This kid that lived with the Davies. Now the Davies lived on the same side of the street as Maria, two blocks up. They lived right across the street from this little grade school. And anyway, years later, it just kind of dawned on me. This guy would have been perfect. He was about my height, he looked something like me. You said, what was his name? Uh, I'm trying to think of it. Oh, it's not coming to you?
1: The interrogators were extremely skeptical of this theory. They felt that Jack McCullough sounded like he made it up on the spot. He later told Hanley that he only remembered this neighbor after he showed up in a dream.
0: Jack McCullough became more agitated as the interrogation went on. He became visibly angry when the detectives mentioned his mother's deathbed confession and said she must have lied.
1: After about an hour and a half of interrogation, one of the officers laid out the same six photos Kathy Chapman saw in 2010.
0: After a few moments, he acknowledged that one of the boys looked like him. When he finally self-identified... The cops felt they officially had enough information to detain him.
1: Jack McCullough was officially arrested in the early hours of June 30, 2011. While he was booked at a jail in Seattle, the investigators sent a video of this interrogation to Clay Campbell, the state's attorney in DeKalb County, Illinois.
0: Campbell was a longtime resident of Sycamore and was familiar with the Riddle family. He'd seen the damage that Maria's murder did to the family and the community firsthand.
1: Anne O'Neill reported that as Campbell watched the video with his assistants, something struck him about the way Jack McCullough talked about the seven-year-old girl. And after his team reviewed the evidence against him, they were pretty sure they had a case.
0: Campbell felt like he needed to go through with it, if only for Maria's memory. He knew it would be extremely difficult to prosecute. If he went forward with it, this would be the oldest case to go to trial in American history.
1: It's also worth noting that Campbell had won the election for state's attorney less than a year before. His chances in the next election cycle may have looked grim, but putting the county's oldest mystery to bed could definitely improve those odds.
0: Regardless of their motivations, the prosecutors eventually decided the case was worth the risk. As Jack McCullough sat in his Seattle jail cell, Campbell called Kathy Chapman personally to tell her Johnny was finally behind bars. Jack McCullough was extradited back to Illinois. He arrived back in Sycamore the same day Maria's body was exhumed at Elmwood Cemetery.
1: The prosecutorial team hoped they could find a shred of DNA or other evidence left in Maria's casket.
0: But because the body was out in the elements for five months before it was discovered, it was never embalmed. The nearly mummified remains smelled terrible, but there was no DNA left to recover.
1: A forensic anthropologist was able to re-examine the body and determine a cause of death, though... The coroner in 1958 chalked up Maria's death to suspected foul play. But after this examination, it looked like Maria was stabbed.
0: This was an important piece of information, but it didn't help the prosecution's case against Jack McCullough much. Clay Campbell recognized that there was no hard evidence to work with.
1: Campbell didn't want to give up though. He decided to first try Jack McCullough for a separate crime, one that might be easier to prove. He wanted to bring Jack into court for the alleged rape of his sister, Jean Tessier.
0: Jean mentioned a horrifying memory to Brian Hanley in the early stages of his investigation. She claimed to remember how Jack McCullough came home on leave from the military in 1961 or 1962 and took her to one of his friend's houses, According to Jean's court testimony, he assaulted her and invited his friends to do the same. She was 14 years old, and he would have been in his early 20s.
1: Jean openly talked about the abuse she suffered as a child, but never reported the incident to police. When Campbell asked her to participate in the trial, she was hesitant. Reliving the event in front of a courtroom just sounded like another violation.
0: The 64-year-old only agreed to testify because it could help with Jack's murder conviction. On April 10, 2012, she publicly accused her brother of raping her more than 50 years before.
1: Naturally, the first thing the judge wanted to know was why she waited so long to bring this forward. In most cases like this, the statute of limitations would have expired, but because Jack spent so little time in Illinois after the alleged assault, that rule
0: didn't apply. In truth, Jean was only there to help the future murder trial. But she wasn't allowed to say that in court. She clammed up. Once cross examination started, it appeared difficult for her to recall certain details.
1: Her testimony appeared inconsistent, and two men who lived in the house where she said the assault took place denied her story. She left before the verdict could be read, because she knew they'd lose.
0: And she was right. Jack McCullough was acquitted, and the prosecution tried to regroup. Their strategy failed.
1: The prosecution had no choice but to keep going. Throughout the summer of 2012... They continued to prepare for Jack McCullough's murder trial, but they knew that in order to win it, they'd need to be very strategic or very lucky.
0: Next, the oldest cold case trial in American history begins. Hear
1: that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush
0: In September of 2012, Jack McCullough was finally put on trial for the alleged abduction and murder of Maria Ridolph, who disappeared from a street corner in Sycamore, Illinois, in 1957.
1: According to a witness at the trial, the 73-year-old seemed confident in the courtroom, and from his perspective, he had good reason. He'd been acquitted of the sexual assault charges that the prosecution threw at him a few months before. And if that case was difficult to prove, this one would be nearly impossible.
0: There was no physical evidence that tied him to Maria's murder. And there was plenty of documentation that he was out of town when Maria was abducted.
1: Besides that, the main pieces of evidence against him seemed remarkably weak. One was an alleged deathbed confession from his mother, who was on heavy doses of morphine at the time.
0: The other was an identification from a seriously flawed photo lineup. The defense team could easily swat away both of these, and once they showed the FBI files and phone records that cleared him, the case would basically be over.
1: The main thing he'd be up against was public opinion. The memory of Maria still stuck around in Sycamore, and it seemed unlikely that a jury could be fully unbiased in a case that had become local legend. But he didn't even need to worry about that.
0: Due to the massive amount of media coverage and the sensitive nature of the case, Jack's defense team opted for a bench trial. There was no jury whatsoever. Instead, a single judge would decide his fate. In other words, he only needed to convince one person he was innocent.
1: But as the trial got underway, Jack's smile faded He learned that the presiding judge would not be the same person who ruled him innocent in the trial five months earlier. Because of a potential conflict of interest, a judge from a neighboring county took her place.
0: He also learned that this judge, James C. Halleck, made two rulings before the trial began that could completely alter the outcome.
1: Because nearly 55 years had passed since the kidnapping, there were very few witnesses left. This meant that the majority of evidence presented would be hearsay evidence, heard or read by someone else and relayed to the court secondhand. Most of the time, hearsay evidence is banned in courtrooms, but things get more complicated when the key witnesses are dead.
0: Each side needed to argue for hearsay exceptions in order to present their evidence, and Judge Halleck's decisions benefited one side a lot more than the other.
1: Jack McCullough's defense hinged on the FBI reports from 1957. But Illinois law states that police reports can't take the place of witness testimony. They qualify as hearsay, unless the officers or agents involved are physically present in the courtroom. But in this
0: case, that was impossible. The authors of the report were all dead. The defense asked for an exception, but Judge Halleck denied it. That meant the only way the defense team could present Jack's alibi would be if he took the stand himself and recounted his every move on the night of December 3rd, 1957.
1: Jack's lawyers were worried that the 73-year-old would crumble during cross-examination. They knew he'd changed his story several
0: times in the last 50 years. Even if he did his best to tell the truth... The night was so far in the past, he'd be hard-pressed to get every detail right.
1: Meanwhile, the prosecution team asked Halleck for a hearsay exception for Eileen Tessier's deathbed confession. Obviously, Jack's mother wasn't able to testify herself. She died in 1994. Judge Halleck allowed Janet Tessier to give second-hand testimony about her mother's words, but didn't promise to take it at face value.
0: These hearsay rulings gave a boost to the prosecution and hobbled the defense. After these massive changes in the evidence allowed in court, it was hard to expect anything other than a guilty verdict.
1: The trial began in earnest, and each side presented their scenario of what happened the night Maria was kidnapped.
0: Both the prosecution and the defense agreed that Jack McCullough was in Chicago from midday on December 2nd to around noon on December 3rd, 1957. But the timelines diverged from there.
1: Because of the unpunched train ticket, the prosecution argued that Jack must have driven his car to Chicago on December 2nd. Even though he told the FBI he'd been in Chicago between noon and 6 p.m., Someone claimed to have seen the car in downtown Sycamore around 2.30.
0: According to witness testimony, Jack later asserted that he'd sold the car the day before because he had planned to join the military. If it was seen driving around, the new owner must have been behind the wheel.
1: The prosecution wasn't allowed to present the train ticket as evidence. Still, they argued that if Jack did have access to his car... That meant he could have been in Sycamore when Maria was taken.
0: The prosecution presented a speculative timeline of the night of the crime, but there are key details that don't add up. According to them, Jack McCullough approached Maria Ridolf and her friend Kathy around 6.15 p.m. on the night of December 3rd. He played with the girls for a few minutes, and when Kathy asked the time, he purposefully gave her an incorrect answer and said it was around 7 p.m.
1: The prosecutor said that after Kathy left to grab her mittens, Jack must have lured Maria to his car and forced her inside. Then he sped over to Rockford and left Maria in his car while he made the phone call that placed him far away from Maria's house at 6.57 p.m.
0: He must have killed her and disposed of the body at some point in the night, and then returned to Sycamore so he could meet with Air Force recruiters in the morning.
1: There were many issues with this version of events. For one, it was generally accepted that Maria was taken around 7 p.m. And while the abductor could have given a fake time to Kathy on purpose, it seemed unlikely.
0: Besides, even if Maria was taken at 6.30, it would be difficult to make it to Rockford by 6.57 when he placed the call. While it was possible to make the drive from the Riddelf property to Rockford in about 30 minutes, the payphone he called from was on the far edge of town. Even at 65 miles per hour, it would be more like a 40-minute drive.
1: With a fresh layer of snow on the roads, it was hard to imagine maintaining that speed especially with a kidnapped child in the car.
0: There were also multiple pieces of evidence that showed the abduction happened no earlier than 7 p.m., though many of them were not presented in court. For one, Kathy's mother told the FBI she'd glanced at the clock after Kathy got her mittens. It was 6.55 p.m.
1: Maria's father also remembered that Maria came inside to grab her doll when he was watching a Western TV show, According to one journalist, local broadcast schedules show there was only one Western on that night, an episode of Cheyenne, that began at 6.30. That meant the last time Maria was in the house was between 6.30 and 7, so she couldn't have been abducted between 6.15 and 6.30.
0: But the defense was unable to point out many of these inaccuracies. Without the FBI reports, they hardly had anything to support the alibi.
1: The prosecution had witnesses on their side, too, but their testimonies were riddled with inconsistencies. Janet Tessier testified to her mother's confession, but so did her sister Mary, who was also in the room when Eileen Tessier accused her son of murder.
0: Janet reported that her mother said, John did it referring to Jack McCullough's birth name, John Tessier. But while Mary supported her sister this whole time, she told the judge her mother didn't mention John at all. She just said he did it.
1: The prosecution's other star witness, Kathy Chapman, also had issues. The defense was skeptical about her identification of Jack McCullough in the photo lineup, and cross-examined her ruthlessly. But Kathy didn't admit that she might have been influenced by the lineup.
2: That picture was slightly different than other pictures, is it not? Is that fair to say?
3: No, it was the picture of Johnny.
2: But it's different than the other five pictures, correct?
3: No, it was the picture that I had chosen.
1: The defense pointed out the possibly prejudicial nature of the lineup... And Kathy eventually conceded that the photo of Jack looked different from the rest, but she insisted it hadn't impacted her choice.
0: In the 11th hour of the trial, the prosecution brought in three more witnesses to make their case. They were jailhouse informants. All of them claimed they heard Jack McCullough admit to killing Maria.
1: The informants claimed they weren't getting anything from being there, and were simply trying to pass along valuable information. But even if they didn't have ulterior motives, their stories seemed dubious.
0: All three of the informants gave different stories about how Maria died, and none of them mentioned stabbing, which the forensic pathologist had determined was her actual cause of death.
1: Despite all the evidence issues from the prosecution side, there wasn't much that the defense could do. After four days of testimony, the case reached what felt like an inevitable conclusion on September 14, 2012.
0: Jack McCullough was convicted of kidnapping and murdering Maria Ridolph a full 54 years and 10 months after the fact. A wave of media coverage followed, lauding the investigative team who closed one of the oldest cold cases in the nation.
1: But the inconsistencies in the prosecution's story and the unfair nature of the trial continued to gnaw Jack's family and legal team.
0: The evidence that he actually kidnapped and killed the seven-year-old was painfully thin. His stepdaughter Janie O'Connor wrote as much in a letter to the judge, dated November 30th, 2012.
3: This case is unprecedented. And in the future, I am positive it will be overturned on appeal. Those involved and the decisions made in this case will be scrutinized. And I can only hope the people involved will be held accountable for their actions. In the week after the abduction, my dad took a polygraph test administered by the FBI. I would like to see the people, some of whom are in this courtroom, take the same test related to many things about this case. Again, my name is Janie O'Connor. Jack McCullough is my dad. Jack McCullough is innocent.
1: It took only a few weeks after the trial for Jack McCullough to start the appeals process. His defense team argued that the trial was unfairly tipped in the prosecution's favor because more of their witnesses were alive. They also said the photo lineup shown to Kathy Chapman was impermissibly suggestive.
0: This first appeal was denied almost instantly, and the court continued to move forward.
1: On December 10th, 2012, Jack McCullough was sentenced to life in prison.
0: After the verdict was read, Maria Ridolf's siblings met with Kathy Chapman on the courthouse steps. It started snowing just like that night 55 years ago. For the first time in half a century, they felt true relief It seemed like they'd finally made Maria proud.
1: However, for Maria's friends and family, this feeling was short-lived. Jack McCullough continued to contest the decision. When a new state's attorney inherited the case from Clay Campbell in 2015, he spent six months reviewing every available document, including the previously banned FBI reports.
0: After he looked through more than 4,500 pages of evidence, the new attorney stated that there was reason to believe Jack had been wrongly convicted. On April 15, 2016, the murder conviction was overturned.
1: Jack McCullough broke into a smile as the judge read his ruling. Maria Ridoff's siblings, now in their 60s, sat quietly across from him in the courtroom, and thought about the little girl who didn't get to grow up alongside them.
0: After Jack was ruled innocent, one of the siblings told a CBS reporter that she still believed he was responsible.
1: But investigators have moved on.
0: In November of 2016, the Illinois State Police stated they'd received an anonymous tip and were looking into a new suspect.
1: It's unclear if they continued to dig into this person or any other suspect in this case, but they likely were limited by the same things that ruined the case against Jack McCullough. A lack of physical evidence, fading memories, and worst of all, time.
0: Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode.
1: For more information on the case, amongst the many sources we used, we found Anne O'Neill's CNN series, Taken, the coldest case ever solved, extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: If we live till next time.
1: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kylie Harrington, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Drew Lan, and Jen Wong. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy.
2: I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances, and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.